Ah, Valentine's Day on the radio and lots going on. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Brandon Bean now torn in his grave up in Glasnevin if we were told there's going to be 250 in the snug in the grave diggers. To think that you might not need a sugar tax at all, that you could just play flute music in petrol stations around the country. That's right, you could. And um, mind you, in many petrol stations, you're very hard pushed to buy a banana or an apple because it's full of sugary foods. But if the options are there and if we get the sound right, people will reach for different things. Amongst those who voted Leave in 2016, there has been a marked uh, increase in the perception that Britain's the Brexit has been bad for the economy and that people who've come to that view, around a third of them at least, have changed their minds. And we'll start with the live line and Miel Flower is a food and drink festival in the fruit and veg market off Capel Street in Dublin and Joe's caller Sean was not too pleased with the prices. The festival is called Miel Flower it's going to be on in the Dublin, the, the redundant uh, Dublin fruit and veg market. Um, now, it's a brilliant location. It's a, It's been derelict for a number of years. It's just off Cable Street there. The last time you would have seen it in all its glory was in the opening scene of Mrs. Brown's Buys, the movie. And June Rogers and Agnes Brown and Winnie and the whole lot of them paraded down from Church Street and had this incredible dance scene in the fruit market. But it's been closed and empty and it's a it's a big high ceiling building. Now, Sean, good afternoon, Sean. Hiya, Joe. How are you? Good. Can you tell us about this event and why you, you're uh, asking about why it's so highly priced just to get through the door? Well, like, obviously, you, you, you've touched on it there. The market's so old. It's been there in that area for for I think over a hundred years, you know, so mm-hmm. the vital part of the area and this uh, festival market um, is going to cost between I think twenty two euro just to get in, and then fifty euro for like a VIP package, which I think gets you two points. So fifty five quid, I think it is after after tax, just to get into a market. Then you have to spend to get your beers, your food into a food festival. It just doesn't make sense to me. Okay, well, I, I, I looked up I, I, when, when I heard you were coming on. I looked up the prices for two tickets just to get through yeah. the door. For yeah. what, there's two sessions every day. There's a 12 to 4 and 5 to 10. So at 4 o'clock, you're out the door. It's, it's the way they did uh, Taste of Dublin in the Ivy Gardens during the summer or whatever. Same yeah. thing. You, you, you're cleared out at 4 o'clock and then mm. the second. For two tickets... Uh, and then two tickets for the snog, they call it, the snog. Yeah, the snog, yeah. For two tickets in and two tickets for the snog, it came to 160 quid. Yeah. Well, like imagine you have to go to a field market and then you have to pay more money when you get in. Who can afford that? You know, like, it's a market, it's a place of culture. Like, these areas, like, Smithfield Square is the same. Like, it's just sitting there, there's nothing going on in it. And it's on, it's part, just just to acquaint people, it's on as part of the St. Patrick's Festival. Indeed, it's supported by the St. Patrick's Festival. Yeah. And it's on uh, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday of the St. Patrick's weekend. And there's two yeah. sessions every day. Children yeah. children can go, I think, in the afternoon session, but they can't go in the evening session. Now, it doesn't give, they, they say on, the, the website doesn't have, apart from selling tickets, doesn't have much detail. Um, I found we found out about the snug because we asked them, and the snug, uh, in my little uh, experience of snugs, would hold what Sean in your experience, a snug would hold five, six, eight people, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you sit in well, the snug, you know 
the snug and meow flower will hold 250 people. <laughs> Not very snug, is it? And yeah. they also say, and in fairness to them, they also say, um, if I can find it here, because they sent us in a statement. No, you have to admire people who are going to make it, try and make a go with something. In fairness, yeah, well, that's what, I'm, I'm not against. Look, it's the day of love. I'm, I'm, I'm not against making money. I'm not making trying to, you know, put put things on in these in these places. But that's crazy money to be charging people for before you even have a drink, or you even have some of the food at a food festival. And like, if you go to a football match, you pay to go to see the football. Okay. Yeah. When you pay to food, when you pay into a food um, market or, or a festival, you expect to get some food. You're not paying for anything. You're just paying to go through a, a door. I think it's crazy. Well, I think apparently, if if you pay the extra fifty quid ahead to get into mm. the two hundred and fifty person snug, you'll yeah. get two two drinks, either prosecco or a beer. Imagine what the prosecco would be like. It'd be in the little uh, plastic glasses that you get. Well, right? no, you don't. You don't know that. And then well, they also say that the snow will have posh toilets and yeah. um, and uh, nice seats. Well, that's Sean. Then the organizer of Meow Flower Festival, Andy Noonan, talked to Joe. Hey, Joe. How's it going? Good. Yeah, you're the organizer. I am indeed of Meow Flower. Where did the Correct. idea come from? In fairness. Uh, Joe, we've been geez, we've been running events for I've been running events since I was sixteen. I'm thirty seven now, but we've been doing these food and drink events for ten years now. It's about okay. ten year anniversary doing these, so yeah. And what, uh, we, we do we do one called the Big Grill Festival in Herbert Park every August. Uh, okay. Barbecue and food festival, and uh, this festival we we wanted wanted to do a, a festival that's all about Irish food and drink for quite a while. So this was a good opportunity to do one, you know. And do you pay into the Herbert Park one. We do indeed. Yeah, you do indeed. At the gate. Yeah, correct. Okay. So, and how many yeah, times has that been run? That is, God, we're doing it since 2014. Obviously, we we two years there With where the we COVID couldn't run that, it yeah. due to okay. COVID. Yeah, so last last August was our seventh one. Well so it should have yeah. been our ninth, but it was our well seventh done. one. Okay. So, now, yeah, Sean's yeah. criticisms, I don't know where you heard him there now saying, um, I looked it I up. I didn't, I missed it, sorry. Okay, so, well, yeah, well, well, I, well, I went on to the website, and there's very little information, in fairness, on your website, yeah. even though we're a month away from the event. Um, I priced two tickets, uh, plus two entries to this snug, it's called a snug, yeah. um, and it came to 160 quid, including booking fees. Jeez, I'd nearly be ringing you myself, Joe. <laughs> now, what does it come to? 160 quid to complain about my own event, uh, no, it's it's. Uh, I, I don't know where that information. Well, hang on. From. Well, let's let's try yeah. and do it then. Into yeah, yeah. into the snug, it's fifty quid, isn't it? Yeah. Plus, no, no, hang on. No, hang on. Uh, plus a booking fee. Correct. How much is how much is the booking fee? Uh, it's the guts of ten percent they charge. Yeah. So another four. So that's fifty five. That's so that's hundred and ten for two of us to go into the snug, right? And then the yeah. entry the entry ticket for a session is only it's one. There's two sessions a day. For one session is what twenty two, twenty three quid plus a booking fee. Correct, but, but so that's uh, another. Uh, so that's another fifty tickets. quid. I know that. I know that. I know, that. I know that. I know that. So that's that. That comes to one hundred and sixty quid for two people to get in the door. No, it doesn't. Uh, the snug includes admission, so it includes admission plus two drinks. So, so the general admission is twenty two per yeah. person plus booking fees, and then as kind of an upgraded experience, the snug, which is the snug. That's um, that's fifty per person plus booking fees, but that includes your admission as well as extra okay, so and two drinks. So, so it's hundred. And what are, what are the two drinks for hundred and ten uh, euro for two Prosecco people? or beer? You can have both or one or the other. Well, is that a pint of beer or a bottle of beer? Or? It's it's a three thirty ml. Yeah, so a, pint, a glass a or a bottle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. 
So you get you get how many people can be, get access? How many people will be in the snug at any one time? Allowed? Uh, we have it limited to two fifty. That's hardly a snug now, is it, Andy? Ah, it's, it's, it'd be pretty snug when it's when it's up and running. Brandon being now torn in his grave up in Glasnevin <laughs> if we was told there's going to be 250 <laughs> in the snug in the grave diggers. <laughs> there's, there's a mezzanine as well we're building so you can go upstairs to kind of have a look out over the whole festival. You so can look down the on them. Downstairs will be more than snug you, you have posh loos. Well, we have you, posh, posh loos, yeah. What, well, it, it, sorry, in I'm, festival I, terms, we have posh loos, yeah. Yeah, but if I pay 22.50, what type of loo am I getting? A bucket in the corner? Oh, you, 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 still, you still get a... You still get a uh, a, a very clean uh, festival toilet. Is it the same loo? No, it's a different. It's a different type of toilet. These are kind of units. So um, we now live in a two-tier toilet society as well. <laughs> I wouldn't say a that, lanyard, but, uh, a lanyard, and a wristband. Correct. And Andy explained the type of structures they put into the venue. No, yeah, we put we put in a like a long bar structure, and then we everyone kind of takes a space within that. Okay. Same as what we do with Big Grill. It's worked very well. It's, okay, so but the, Big the Grill, thing, thing Big, Big is Grill is outdoors in the summer. It, it is indeed. Yeah. yeah okay. So, indeed. so um, and then how how do you take? Okay, they pay to go in the craft beer people. Sean said he he heard a figure of two grand for a small craft beer crowd, and then how do you how do you take a percentage on? How do you work out the percentage, Andy? Well, it's just something we do at the end with everyone, you know. So, but how how do you know they're not? They didn't have a few beers themselves, and they're spoofing you. I mean, it's just a trust system, really. With that, okay. I mean, if they, if they have a few beers and they're spoofing, that's that's up to them, you know. I mean, no, no, no. I'm saying, how do you, to, how, so someone takes in, let's say five grand, and you come to them on the Sunday when it's all over, the six sessions or whatever are finished, and you what you say to them, how much did you take in? Well, no, it goes. It all goes through a payment system. Ah, so we, we so, all know everyone so, gets a report. So no, yeah. no one can get round it. Yeah, it's a cashless event, John. And how much? Do you, oh, tell me, how does that work? Well, it just goes through a, a payment provider, a bit like everything at the moment. Well, hang on, it's a cashless event. What does that mean? Every bar has a little machine. Everyone has a payment terminal, yeah, and they can print a report. But, yeah, but the payment terminal is supplied by you. Correct. Okay. Now. Um, Pretty, pretty. Sta- it's same at Big Rail, same at kind of other yeah, events, similar events that happen in Ivy Gardens and places like that. You okay. Know? Now, were you for a vendor? I don't know. Is it is it easy to get vendors? You're still advertising for vendors, I see. Uh, it is. I mean, we we have a, a certain certain criteria for this that we kind of want to promote Irish food and drink. So, yeah. Um, not everyone is suitable, and we're probably not suitable for everyone on the on the flip side. You know. But who so, would you who would you turn away? Well, I wouldn't like to name any names because I don't think that would be very fair on on, on, on air. But uh, it just it just has to. Well, have you turned any? Have you turned any on the way? We wouldn't put in six burger stands, for example. That that's kind of how we 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 do it. You know, like we make sure that there's in, like individuality with all our the way we. Well, six burger stands would be in competition, wouldn't it? Exactly. So we we, we don't we we try and make sure everyone's doing a unique dish, and okay. it's worth just worth pointing out that we we, we spend the whole year. Uh, you yeah. know, seeking out the best people to curate this stuff. It's not it's not a market, Joe, it's important to, to kind of point that out, you know. Um, I think we're all looking forward to the day that, that yeah, this place opens as a market. Absolutely. But, but for now, the cost to open this event is astronomical, you know. Especially so then, what, so then, what then, well, tell me, tell me, explain to the listeners your, sure. your overhead stand in, the, in a redundant building. Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, so where do I start? There's no... There's not enough power, 
So there's only basic power to plug your, your laptop in or whatever. So it's to bring power in. Uh, the toilets there, there are no toilets, so we have to bring all the toilets in. Um, insurance, we have to upgrade the fire suppression system, the, the lighting for the fire. Um, what are, we've security, obviously, insurance, mm-hmm. uh, staff on the day, you know. Um, Do you pay? Do you have to pay the corpo? Uh, oh, yeah, the, the, the Dublin City Council hired the venue. They, they are hiring it for a number of events. There's, there's one on this weekend, a very similar event, actually, with a similar ticket price. So, yeah, um, What's, what's they, that called? It's a, it's a Latin thing. I've, I've never heard of it before, but we're going to pop along myself. It looks great. So we're, we're happy to go okay. and support it, you know. It's okay, a Latin, Sean, Latin event. Sean, so. you, well, Sean, but if there are so many overheads, toilets, power, all the basic stuff, you have, to, you have to install. If there are so many overheads, why'd you pick that venue, Andy? Because it's a unique venue and it's a, it's a once-off chance to, to, to do an event there. And look, okay. we're, 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 used to, we're used to paying and, and doing, doing these things yeah, in, yeah. in these Absolutely. venues, Joe, yeah. you know? Andy Noonan, organiser of Meow Flower Festival from The Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on Morning Ireland, when love is in the air, sometimes lies are also in the air. Here's Mary Wilson talking about the dangers of romance fraud. Romance fraud is when a person believes they're in a relationship with someone, but that person is a scammer using a fake profile online. The scammer will slowly gain the victim's trust before eventually asking for money. Last year, nearly €2 million Euro was stolen through romance fraud and it is on the rise. Detective Chief Superintendent Pat Lorden is nothing sacred. You give your heart and then they scam you. Mary, I'll have to apologise first of all and say, yes, that is the story in a lot of cases that we are seeing. Um, obviously, we don't want to ruin Valentine's Day for anybody today, but we just want to alert people to this type of crime occurring every day of the week, not just today. It's a timely warning. Will you tell us maybe about it through some of the cases you've come across, some details you can give us? I know there's a pensioner who lost 100,000. There is. um, A lot of people uh, have lost a lot of money, but also, Mary, a lot of people have lost smaller amounts of money, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20,000 euros where they couldn't afford to lose that amount of money. The types of people, as you say, pensioners, we don't want to focus on, on pensioners no, here. No, and, I, and I don't mean to. I mean, there's, there's yeah, some, of these, some of the reports I've seen. A, a woman in her late 40s who lost 27,000. A man in his 40s forwarded 20,000 to a woman um, after he was convinced to deal in cryptocurrency. There's all sorts of um, Absolutely. relationships, and, and make-believe relationships gone wrong. Yes, and, and what happens, Mary, is there are two really different types of romance fraud that I've seen over the last seven or eight years. One is the, exactly the one where you're talking about the, the, the pensioner, uh, where this injured party transferred €100,000 in total over a seven-month period. She was on a dating app for, you know, pensioners, as we say. Um, I'm not far away from that, Mary, so I can call us pensioners almost at this stage. So they were messaging back and forth for quite a long time. He said he was working in Germany. Um, he advised her of some investment opportunities to make some money and then hopefully that they would meet up and live happily ever after. But that was not to happen. But that's the that's the one where they look for an investment or share mm-hmm. some ideas that their friends have. But more often than not, we're seeing that they are going to come to visit you. They want money for flights. Like there's one other case we gave you there where actually four of the red flags you would see in a lot of cases, the four flags were in the one case 
He was in the army abroad. He was in Yemen. He was uh, in love with this lady online. He was deciding to get out of Yemen. He needed money for that. He needed money to get through for flights and customs. And then his gold that he was bringing with him was seized. And uh, he needed more money to clear that from customs. So a lot of red flags there. Mm. And, and your researcher asked me some questions yesterday, Mary, in relation to this. You know, stop and think, is this person mm. real? Have you ever seen them on the screen in front of you? Because you won't have seen them on the screen in front of you in their natural place, their natural look, their natural chat, because they're working to a storybook to convince you that they are real. You know, I suppose we can all be fools for love, can't we? What is your advice to people? And and, and does loneliness play a factor here? Yes, uh, these criminals, and that's all they are. I don't even like using the word scammers every day of the week for all of these types of fraud. These are criminals, they're organised criminals, and loneliness is part of it. And obviously we don't want to turn around here this morning and criticise all of the dating apps. That's definitely not our role here this morning because some people have quite a lot of success on dating apps. But people prey on, these people prey on their loneliness. They do some research with you on social engineering. They know that you're into hill walking, sailing, whatever you're into. And the minute they start talking to you, they will have a storyline drafted out so that they keep you convinced that they are real. They will, in my experience, rarely, if ever, meet with you. They'll rarely, if ever, turn on the camera because there's always a hitch with internet coverage. So one of the older ones I remember, there was a guy saying that he was on a Nile rig down in West Cork. Now, as you know, Mary, there are no oil rigs out in the West Cork coast, but he was still able to spin this story. We, we arrested some people involved in this in Ireland in the last number of years, and they have been before the courts. But these people, one of them in particular, was running about five or six different victims and injured parties on their computer, on a dating app, where they'd met on a dating app. And these five or six people were convinced that they were talking mm. to a real person. And it's, it is great to hear that you have been successful in prosecuting in some cases. But I suspect as well, Pat, uh, people might be slow to come forward because you feel you feel stupid, maybe, for, for having been caught. Well, it, it's a double-edged sword on this one because people are normally, as you said, very vulnerable, lonely. And now all of a sudden they realise they've put seven or eight or nine months of their life into this relationship but on top of that, they've lost all their life savings. Like I spoke to one lady two years ago. She lost every single penny of her 40,000 euros gratuity. Um, last year alone, Mary, 1.9 million euro was taken from the victims of crime. That is probably just the tip of the iceberg, as you say, because we know for a fact that a lot mm. of people do not report this type of crime. So please, if you're in an online relationship, you know, why would this person need money mm. if they wanted to continue the relationship? Stop and, and that's think. really what it's all about. All right. Money. Detective Chief Superintendent Pat Lorden from Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Adrian Duncan has a background in engineering and fine art. And he was talking to Ryan about his lifelong fascination with bungalows. Oh, probably as a young fella. I remember um, my, my father was an engineer in uh, in Longford and um, he used to do planning permissions for lots of people during the 80s and that kind of stuff. So I probably would have started seeing the word bungalow then. He had lots of these bungalow bliss books around his office at the time and he was doing planning permissions. So it was probably the first time I saw it when I was a young lad, about seven or eight, starting to read and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah. That's the first time I probably would have seen the word, yeah. And can you give us a, a, an indication of what you decided to go into? What what life path did you take? Yeah, so um, 
when I was in school, I started doing more, uh, much more kind of, say, practical subjects, technical drawing and uh, physics and chemistry and all that kind of stuff. And I ended up studying uh, engineering over in Aberdeen. And then I worked in the industry for oh, about 10 years or so, until about 2007. And then I started, in 2007, I decided that I wanted to leave uh, the construction industry and go back to study fine art. So I put together a portfolio and did two years out in Dunleary. And then I ran out of money. And then I uh, applied to do uh, an MA up in NCAD, or art in, the, art in the Contemporary World. And it was there that I was sort of reintroduced. I sort of started looking at the landscape and the buildings around Ireland differently again, um, not as an engineer no longer, but as a kind of an artist. And I realized that the bungalows were an extremely interesting thing. Mm. And I wrote my master's thesis then at the time on the bungalows, what they were, um, why they were popular, um, why they were so disliked and all that kind of stuff. And then I just kept working on the project for the next 10 years or so, doing different types of projects, exhibitions, short films, this kind of stuff. And then the last couple of years, I returned to the writing of the book and uh, rewrote it. And I came out with the Liverpool Press last um, November, last October. And uh, yeah, so that's basically, that's, that's, that's how that, hmm. my relationship to the, uh, to the subject, yeah. That's a very, uh, and I don't say it in a pejorative way at all, I really don't, uh, but it's a very intense relationship with the bungalow world. It is, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, the interest like, of, kind of Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, they were always, when I was growing up, they were just kind of around me in the landscape, and I never really took much notice of them. And it was only when I just, when I had my, when I started looking at things differently uh, in my early 30s, when I was back in our college, I was like, these are actually really interesting. So then I started kind of taking all the knowledge I had, because I would have drawn them when I was a young fella, when I was working during the summers in my dad's office and that kind of stuff. So I would know about them in lots of different ways how they were built. So I know them as an engineer knows them, but then I know them also kind of as a visual artist looks at the land knows them. And they're the two kind of prisms that I've sort of brought to how I look at them, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's a kind of a knowledge of building, but then also kind of a, a, a trying to reading of them off the landscape as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's essentially, yeah, that's, that's the way I've gone about it. That's the way it's happened. Yeah. I mean, you could say intense relationship, well, but I, yeah, I, there was a period of time there was a period of time yeah. when I was sort of researching it and I'd be driving around the landscape and I'd be like the, mentally noting the different designs as they were sitting on the landscape from all of the looking through the actual designs in the book that uh, Jack Fitzsimons put out. So yeah, yeah, I was obsessed by them, I suppose. So Ryan asked Adrian about the book Bungalow Bliss by Jack Fitzsimons. In the early 70s, Jack Fitzsimons was a clerk of works at uh, Meads County Council. And lots of people have been coming up to him in the late 60s just saying, you know, would you do a set of plans for a house? And um, this kind of happened increasingly and more and more increasingly, and he decided to do a book. So he did 20 designs back in 1971. Um, he and his wife Anne uh, put together this book called Bungalow Bliss. They had it printed locally. He put a couple of hundred copies into his, uh, the boot of his car, and he drove out into the landscape and started selling them to news agents and DIY shops and uh, petrol stations and that kind of stuff. And then um, all of a sudden people started buying them. And um, what the, the model was that you'd pick a design, ring him on a three-digit phone number mm. at the time, and he'd set you out um, six copies of whichever design you chose, and then you'd put that in for client permission, and then you'd build. So it became a bestseller. Like, it, it sold out in the first year, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year. And by about 1981, he was at edition seven of the book, and he'd sold almost a quarter of a million copies of it at the, by that time. So it had this transformative effect on on the landscape in, in rural Ireland, yeah. So what was happening in, in, in terms of um, planning permission, in terms of construction? Uh, wh- why did it become this uh, construction contagion? Yeah, so I think, I mean, during the 60s, there was a shift in education. There was a shift in Irish society in, in rural Ireland. So you're going more, less so from agriculture, and more and more people were staying in school, and more and more people were kind of the RTCs being built around the landscapes, 
and uh, the uh, FOSS courses were available to people. So people were kind of learning, more and more people were learning technical skills. So particular types of building, but also particular types of drawing and um, design and that kind of stuff in these RTCs and FOSS courses. So what you had then was a kind of planning permission uh, pack, um, which was very diagrammatic, and it, it met the skills of people who were trying to apply for planning permissions. And so you had this mix of that the car was affordable and people could move through the landscape. You had this mix of skills that were that people had, and then you had this sort of affordable option for housing, which hadn't been there before. So kind of like around the early 70s, the options for housing used to be, you know, emigrate essentially, or inherit or get onto a housing list. And then Bungalow Bliss just offered this kind of fourth way that became very, very um, attractive to an awful lot of people who were looking to live in Ireland and to and to um, and to work in Ireland. Yeah. And it was a, it was across the the land. I mean, I would have had. Uh, holidays in the west of Ireland and bungalows were very commonplace there. I mean, it wasn't just a, a, an urban thing. No, no, no. I would say actually the, the actual bungalows themselves were were um, markedly rural, you mm. know. Um, and what happened was, like in the planning permit in the county council offices, the bungalow design that Fitzsimons brought brought out, it started becoming the kind of vernacular, um, and it started becoming that that's what the precedent is for for the next type of house. So they sort of spread in a kind of way across the landscape as a kind of yeah, they became the new vernacular. And I know in architectural circles, whenever I use the word vernacular before. Yeah. Uh, it was always kind of taken. No, no, no. The vernacular is the Thatch Cottage, and I was like, well, no. The vernacular is the local architecture, and if you think about um, the actual bungalows, they are the local architecture in terms of how what the available materials, which were things like uh, precast blocks and sills and uh, pre pre made trusses and this kind of stuff, and that the houses were an assemblage that met the kind of skills of the people who were on the landscape at the time. So they're kind of a very, very authentic expression of Ireland uh, in that regard. Hence the word vernacular. Is it that is the low, the, the the kind exactly, of the, the yeah. local language of the land, if you like? Exactly. exactly okay. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. When did the when did the backlash hap start to happen, and why? <laughs> well, I think by it was more or less by the sort of eighty seven, eighty six, eighty seven. So by the late seventies, there were about ten thousand uh, one off houses being built in Ireland every year, um, which is a large number of houses, and a lot of them were being uh, cited, sort of. In, in problematic um, sightings around the west of Ireland and places like that. Mm. So the thing about the planning permission uh, document was that it was put onto an ordnance survey map, your site, but there was no sense of three-dimensional interplay in the uh, planning permission. So there was no photographs, there was no sort of isometric views. It was just like very diagrammatic. And that worked fairly well where the land was flat, but then when the land started to undulate, this planning permission pack broke down really badly because you didn't have a sense of that three-dimensional interplay. So what looked like a, a bungalow on the side of the road was actually a bungalow halfway up a hill, you know. So um, this produced um, a kind of attention in how what Ireland should look like and how Ireland should uh, should be used. And um, I suppose the most there was kind of responses by the architectural establishment, but I would say the most concerted response was um, Frank McDonald's articles in the mm. Irish Times in '87. I think it was September '87. And they're really, really brilliantly written articles and they're very, very well researched. And he talks about lots of problems in planning and lots of problems with um, how um, local politicians are overturning planning permissions and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of the language was in it was uh, had words like rabid and rugged and these kind of things. And I think that kind of... Certainly triggered a lot of people to kind of respond. They were, they felt that their uh, the way they were living was being attacked. Also, 
And uh, yeah, so it produced a sort of, um, it definitely produced a kind of um, a flashpoint at that time. And Ryan asked Adrian about those little republics. It, it is in, 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 in intriguing because you have, you talk about the, the Paul Henry landscape version of Ireland and then what, uh, as you rightly call, quote John McGarhan, calls them what little republics, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it permeated art and literature, you know. The, and I suppose my yeah. question in, in some regards is, uh, when the backlash happened against bungalows in, in Ireland, w- was there an aesthetic snobbery or was there an environmental uh, uh, concern? It was a combination of these things uh, because, as you say, people living in the bungalow, a lot of them said, hang on a second, you know, almost like ye, ye in Dublin, you know, how dare you cast your cold <laughs> eye on, on what is a perfectly functional, beautiful home. Yeah, like I think, the, yeah, there was a couple of things I think happened at the time. One of them was that portfolio had become really uh, a pretty powerful part of the Irish uh, economy and they were framing Ireland in a particular way as well that sort of met something like the Anglo-centric uh, Irish nationalism, so this kind of beautiful big countryside come and visit. Um, so there was environmental concerns, which I think were of, of course valid, and I think the um, the concerns about the damage this might do to tourism um, was also a, a concern. But also the sort of language that was being used when they were being described, like I said earlier on, the word like rabid and the words like gombean and uh, these kind of words were being used. And what it did was it produced a sort of structure snobbery whereby that mirrored the sort of snobbery that Irish peasants were being subjected to in Punch magazine in the mm-hmm. mid-19th century, but it had just been shifted over to Dublin. And I think the problem was that um, I, in this case then, the you know, the, the 1980s Irish man woman down the, uh, down the country, they were a sort of toothless uh, simpleton uh, starved of sophistication and taste and this is how it was framed by these by the Irish Times and by um, uh, the Broadsheet Press and I think that's that was obviously that's a snobbery that has existed before but it was just supplanted and reused again and of course that's going to be problematic um, and I think that's where obviously then what was interesting about it was that then that's sort of filtered down into society and people used to sort of express their own urbanity by saying, aren't they just awful? Mm. Um, and who with any kind of taste is going to disagree? You know, this is the kind of, uh, this is the kind of stuff that, 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 you, that I came across when I was working on, on the uh, subject matter. And it still exists to a certain degree. It's really interesting and persistent that, uh, that structure snobbery is, you know. Yes, uh, but well, everyone has an opinion on, on houses and homes, as you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A text that, uh, Adrian, uh, I think mo- most bungalows were built by farmers' offspring who had free sites, machinery for clearance and digging foundations, a water well and septic tank grants, etc. Not so much the ordinary rural worker. Would, would Adrian agree? The, well, no, I wouldn't really completely agree. I think, like in certain parts of the country, that was the case where people could inherit small plots of land. But in the Midland South and East, where the landowners had much, much larger plot, like the farmers had much bigger farms, people just had to go and buy a site and build it themselves. Um, and the sites at the time were usually about three quarters of an acre to uh, an acre of uh, road facing land. And that's what an awful lot of people uh, did in the Midland South and East. So I think it varied depending on the pattern of land ownership on the countryside. Um, that's So, yeah, I'd say it's a little bit more kind of uh, detailed than that. Well, Mary says we, we all got planning permission for our bungalows back in the 1970s. Bungalows were, <laughs> were such a step up for rural dwellers then. You must remember a lot of farmhouses and council cottages had no sanitation then. Young couples had to share with their parents or in-laws at that time and houses were already overcrowded. And by the way, we built a bungalow and then we had an architect. So it is only more recent times that people got very snobbish about the countryside. They were a necessity and still so comfortable to live in. So leave us alone. Adrian. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this. Well, some, what I think is really important to this here is that, like, people who build if you build your own home, you've got a very, very different connection to it than if someone else builds it and you move in. Um, and I think there's something really elemental in this idea of dwelling. Um, I think building is part of dwelling, you know. Um, and I think that that's what that's what um, people have a kind of pride in what they've built and what they live in. I think I think that that that's something that gets expressed as well. And I totally understand it. I mean, like even people, if you put up your own set of shelves or something like that in your own house, you kind of have a sense of pride about that day's work, and you look upon them with a certain amount of pride. And I think it's the same sort of instinct, but just enlarged to the scale of a bunk, of a of a house. Um, so yeah, I I understand that pride. That's totally like I think I I feel it myself sometimes. Not that I've ever built a house, but I I understand it. You know, Adrian Duncan from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Philip Boucher Hayes, the role of music in your taste buds. Yeah, you have caught me with a little bit of apple in my mouth and listening to a piece of music for good reason. I haven't been caught on the hop because. If you are about to bite into an apple or some dark chocolate, that piece of music that you're listening to might just affect how it tastes. Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin, is here with us to explain how music can affect not just your sense of taste, but also your other senses and even your behaviour. Good morning to you, Brendan. Good morning. Obviously, music can affect our mood, but our senses... Yes, our senses are all linked with each other. Um, the sense of taste is linked with the sense of um, the sense of smell, the sense of smell with vision, and sound is linked with all of them in various different ways. And thus, these connections people are describing between sound and taste. And um, th- this is all to do with what's called the multimodal nature of senses, that they're all they're all mixed up together in various ways that we don't always appreciate. Now, some people appreciate this very much. They have a condition known as synesthesia, where the senses are very clearly mixed up together. Mm-hmm. They can, they can uh, hear uh, tastes, they can, um, you know, see sound and things like this. Most of us, though, the connections are more subtle than that and we're not always aware okay. of them. And do we respond uniformly to different types of sounds or different pitches? Well, there are patterns. There are always idiosyncratic outliers on everything, but there certainly are patterns. So if you look at the relationship between sound and taste, for example, we find that the sound, maybe music that we're hearing, it brings out particular tastes within a food. It doesn't bring new taste, but it shifts the emphasis in what we perceive as taste. Okay, this was the reason that I was eating a little bit of apple there during the ad break, was to get a baseline in my mind for what apples taste like. Now, what are you going to make me listen to and see if it affects the taste of the apple? Well, we're going to hopefully listen to some high-pitched music and some low-pitched as well to see if that changes your perception of the taste of the apple. So a little bit of high-pitched flute music, which Cara might start rolling for us there now, is going to affect me how, do you think? Well, it's going to bring out the sweetness in what you're eating. It's going to be crispy, crunchy, tangy, maybe a bit more zesty, so that the flute music brings out that within the apple taste. Okay. It does, but I don't know it's because you're saying words like tangy and zesty to me or and suggesting that to me or the music, but yes, those are the notes that I'm definitely noticing in my mouth now. Very good. And you don't know if that's the sound of the flute or if, it, if it's the sound of me mm. saying the mm. words that I think you should be uh, perceiving. Either way, it's sound and suggestion has changed the taste of the apple in your mouth. Okay. If we then go for go back to the piece of music that we were playing at the outset there, um, something much lower, much deeper, 
some melancholy kind of tones to it. What should that do? So the idea here is this would bring out a different aspect of the taste of the apple, that you'd be uh, appreciating the deeper, maybe the darker, slightly more bitter, aromatic fruitiness of the apple. Some would say that everything that comes out of my mouth is bitter, but <laughs> definitely not. There's a difference, there's a marked difference to what uh, the last mouthful was. The tanginess and the zestiness is not there any longer. I'm picking up on different ideas. That's fascinating. Well, what's happening is you're getting these sensory inputs all the time. Taste, uh, sound, smell, touch, all kinds of stuff. This is being transmitted up to your brain where you have 86 billion brain cells working away all the time. And while some of them are concentrated, for example, um, smell tends to be in the frontal lobe at the Mm -hmm. front of the brain, um, sight at the back and the occipital lobe. They're all connected. There are trillions of connections between brain cells and all of these sensory inputs are singing out to each other and producing your overall perception. Has anybody ever found practical applications for this? I mean, I'm I'm thinking of restaurateurs here. Well, yes, yes, they have. If you take a public health uh, perspective on this, um, things taste sweeter when you're listening to that high-pitched music, maybe the flute music. So if you're looking for sweetness in what you eat and drink, and if you're listening to this music, you might not need to take in as much sugar to get that sweet rush. Oh, my God. Music can you take over. You might Has anybody done the no, science well, on this? The, si- the science isn't incredibly robust, but there are theoretical reasons to think this would work. We know people taste sugary sweetness more with the music, and there are some, for example, there's a cafe in um, Shanghai <laughs> I mean, to think that you might not need a sugar tax at all, that you could just play flute music in petrol stations around the country. That's right, you could. And um, mind you, in many petrol stations, you're very hard pushed to buy a banana or an apple because yeah, it's full yeah, of sugary yeah, foods. Yeah. But if the options are there, and if we get the sound right, people will reach for different things. And, you know, volume also matters, simple volume of music. So if it's below about 50 decibels, people will make healthier food choices. But if it's 70 decibels or above... We'll start to reach for um, salty, fatty or greasy foods. Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College, Dublin. And in the afternoon, Chloe called Joe about an audition her son attended. Chloe Folan contacted us on email, joe at rt.ie. Chloe, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Okay, tell us why did you contact us and what's your question? I contacted the show due to a very strange audition experience that my son had with Next Star Productions. And my main issue was, with the way this audition was advertised, Mm -hmm. it was advertised in a way that you believed that there were agencies seeking new talent in Ireland, child talent for acting, singing and dancing, or existing roles that were being auditioned for. So once we went through the audition process, we were then basically told via email, on a callback email, that if you were successful with your second callback, you'd have to pay a minimum of $225 to continue with this audition process. So the first audition with Next Star, terrible line, we'll try and improve it. The first the first uh, audition with Next Star Productions, productions who on their website say the nation's most, most elite talent show, showcase, train, rehearse, showcase and audition in front of the nation's leading SAG 
franchised agencies looking to meet new talent for representation. And there's a photograph of two young women, like something out of Frozen or whatever. But they're they're they're, they're they look they look fantastic. Um, you're yeah. saying you did a forced audition on Zoom, is that correct? We did. I registered after speaking to my husband about it and asking my son if he would like to give it a try because it did look good, it did look legitimate. So once Owen was happy to go ahead with it, uh, I signed him up for the online Zoom audition. It was at 4pm on Zoom on February the 11th. Well, that's Chloe. Then Joe spoke to Gillian. Gillian, good afternoon. Have you ever heard, Gillian, have you ever heard of Next Star Productions? I haven't heard of Next Star Productions before today, no. But I've heard of companies like this okay. in the past. This is not a new phenomenon. And, um, yeah. And how how, how do they operate? Um, so the, the, what they are doing is they are, um, they are running kind of like uh, talent shows, if you like, like a talent competition kind of idea, not unlike a fesh or a dance competition mm-hmm. that you might be doing here in Ireland. Um, and they're sending kind of scouts out far and wide to bring people in to take part in the talent competition. Um, and so that's kind of the kind of yeah, thing but that I know, they the, the, do. I know you, you're involved in the independent theatre workshop for over three yeah. decades in, in Dublin. But w- why do you have to pay? The, OK, the first audition, it seems everyone gets through the first audition. Then you're yeah. offered a second audition, but they want money. And they want significant amounts of mon- money. Is that? Well, they want is to that, make money. That, it's, a, it's a money. It's a, it's, it's a, I mean, they're a business, I imagine. And what do you so get, for, what do you get for your money? I think from what I can gather, you get um, a certain amount of online training um, where they'll kind of try and help your child to learn a monologue or give them some of the information on how they should walk or talk or answer questions. And then they'll go along to this competition um, where there'll be lots of kids up performing their pieces on a stage in a, in a, in a venue like a hotel or a conference centre. And they will have people there watching. They'll have judges and they will, they'll engage judges from all sorts of places to come and judge the competition um, who would be, you know, maybe some of them are casting directors as well. They may work as part-time as casting directors, but they could be all kinds of people that they'll bring in to, to, to be judges and you can win, you know, you can win medals and things like that. But I don't think that yeah, it's the way they, to sorry. get cast in a, in a film uh, okay. production. But they, char- <laughs> they characterise themselves on their website, the nation's most elite talent showcase, and you've never heard of them. No, but they're not. No, they're, can, they're you, a business. You, they're a company who are, who've set themselves up to run the competition and they want to make a lot of money. So they're going to charge a lot of money to take part in it. Um, and people, the unfortunate thing is Parents want the absolute best for their child. Mm. And, you know, what child doesn't want to be the next Disney star or be on a Netflix show, you know, or be in Frozen or something? I mean, that's, that's the hook that they put out there. And it, and it really annoys me because it's not the route for a young person to, um, to find their way on stage or and in the also film. On the, on or, the first page of their website, they, you can buy a unisex next a backpack for $50, uh, an ex-fanny mm-hmm. pack for $40, 
T-shirts for thirty dollars. So with the, with, with the logo, it's an the, event, Joe. That there's, there's a business who I want to make some money, and the way they'll do it is they'll they'll set up a competition, kind of a showcasey idea, talent show. They'll invite people to take part in it. The children pay the money. The parents pay the money. They travel and spend vast sums of money to go to America or wherever with stars in their eyes. And they'll get out to America and they'll often set these things up that they'll perform. They'll, you know, have a a hotel in Disneyland Paris or in Orlando or in Hollywood, you know, to give it an extra layer of authenticity. And it is there. It does happen. They can go. They'll just spend a lot of money and the child will get up and they'll get one minute on stage to recite their poem or to walk up and down the catwalk in their little outfit that they've brought. Or they'll get up and do a 30-second or a minute-long dance and people will be watching and they'll get scored and they'll get and the parents will all be watching and they'll have yeah, a great I'm, time. Yeah, but how much am I ponying up for that? Thousand dollars? Thousands of dollars. It's horrendous. Thousands, okay. Then Joe asked Chloe about her son's experience. Um, much of the training sessions they're offering. Well, that's what took me aback, Joe, because when we signed up for the initial audition and even during the audition process, there was no hint or suggestion that to keep progressing there'd be any financial commitment. That yeah. came through in second callback email. So you get the callback email, you and your child are excited because you've got through to second round auditions. Yeah. But then you read the fine print and realise there's a big financial commitment, meaning the cheapest package, the cheapest, is a thousand euros. And um, the most expensive it was four payments of 225 or four payments of 350 or four payments of 500 euros, depending on what you wanted to continue with the audition process. Meaning, for example, my son auditioned under the category of modelling and acting. And if I wanted him, if he got picked with the second callback, mm-hmm. I'd have to pay a minimum of 225 to keep his so-called spot. And then I would be expected to pay uh, four instalments of 350 if I wanted to him to continue in two categories. 350 euro, 350 euro. 350 yeah. euro, four instalments of 350 euro if I wanted him to continue in two categories. If you can't afford that, your child can only continue in one category and it's four instalments of 225. OK, we emailed them. And this is their response. Oh, sorry, it's four years ago. And we got a response from mm. them because it came up before, but they're still, yeah. still around, uh, which are entitled to be. Hello. This is their reply. Hello. We don't get involved in the negativity of the media. There are no fees involved for performers <laughs> with experience and proper training, as explained to all of the talent. Good luck to you. Thank you. Next, our productions team. That's it. Hello. We don't get involved in the negativity. I mean, well, there are no fees involved. That's not true. No, exactly. There are fees if you want to continue, meaning nothing is said when you sign up for the first audition. No hint of that at all. Then it comes through. If you get, a, if you get chosen for a second callback, the email comes up. Congratulations. Please contact us and reply to this email for your second callback time you've gotten through. But then if you read through the fine print, 
all of the financial stipulations come up with a click link to the brochures of the packages. Gillian and Chloe, can Irish children, given that Irish actors find it very difficult to get visas to work in the States, as you know, um, can Irish children act in the States in movies, for example? Well, this is, see, this is the other thing that I would be saying to my students and people. It, it's very difficult. If, if you were lucky enough to be cast by somebody in a ma- major feature film that was shooting in the States, mm-hmm. they would be able to make arrangements, I'm sure, to get your child there. But the chances of that happening um, are exceptionally slim um, from anything like this. Um, if you were to get picked for something, you'd be more likely to have been seen by a casting director in Dublin or yeah, in London. Yeah. Um, you would send in a self-tape to that reputable casting director who would be hired by Disney. Okay, or well, well, I suppose that the question I'm asking, is anyone in Ireland, pre- pre- given, that, given that we had a complaint about them, or a number of complaints no, about them five years ago, has anyone, in, has anyone in no. Ireland progressed? Not that I would have ever heard of. That's Gillian and Chloe on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Villa Badger Hayes, a new term, Brexit. An Ipsos poll from January found that 45% of Britons believe that Brexit is going less well than expected, compared to only 28% in June 2021. I'm joined by John Curtis, Professor of Politics in Strathclyde University. John, you've been tracking public opinion on this issue. What exactly have you been able to find out about how Britons feel about Brexit now? Well, if we look at the position now, if we take the average of the last half dozen polls or so that have asked people how they would vote if we were to have yet another referendum, in this case on whether or not we should rejoin or stay out of the European Union, on average in those polls, 42% say they would vote to stay out and 58% to rejoin. And that's been pretty much the position really ever since the autumn of last year. Um, so it's a fairly persistent uh, position. Now, I don't think it's, it's not uh, increased any further uh, since then, but we do now have a situation where there is more support amongst the wider public, according to the polls at least, for being inside the United Kingdom, inside the European Union rather than outside. Uh, and that, and that, that support for EU membership is higher than any time it has been since the June 26 referendum. If you're a close student of these things, you will be aware that exports to the EU have fallen by 25% since 20, in 2022, that there's a million Europeans have left, that overall the UK economy has shrunk by comparison with the EU. But I would imagine that, that those are things that the vast majority of voters and respondents to polls don't actually register. So are they, um, in your mind... Uh, Uh, looking at their feelings about Brexit and judging them against specific events that are unfolding? That's part of the story, but they are events that, in a sense, illustrate um, a wider pattern. So you're quite right, first of all, to say people are not necessarily there looking at the GDP statistics or the trade statistics and comparing them with the rest of the European Union, etc. But, of course, what they do experience is how the UK economy is going. So putting these two things together, uh, the first signs, uh, at least since the negotiation of the trade and cooperation agreement, so once the trade and cooperation agreement was eventually negotiated last minute uh, and unveiled on Christmas Eve uh, of 2020, 
um, we did have a position where support for being uh, saying outside the European Union was around 52-53% mark for a while. But the turning point seems to have been when in the autumn of 2021, we began to get media stories, indeed, the reality of uh, petrol stations being short of petrol inside the inside Great Britain, um, and also um, a shortage of some foodstuffs in the supermarkets. And stories also about the difficulty of getting abattoir workers to uh, deal with pigs that were ready for market. And that's the point at which public opinion began to switch back in the opposite direction. In a sense, this was the first illustration of how the tightening of the labour market mm. post-COVID inside the United Kingdom together with the making it more difficult for EU citizens at least to come across to the United Kingdom to live and work was beginning to have an impact. So that's the first evidence where people perhaps began to notice. And then, of course, what happened during the summer of last year and into the early autumn was, leaving aside what was happening elsewhere, um, the cost of living crisis began to bite hard inside the United Kingdom. The realization that we were going to have to subsidize oil and gas prices, uh, even this trust had to acknowledge uh, that. And the uh, unveiling gradually of the evidence, you know, leaving aside the comparison that um, people in the, United, in the United Kingdom were suffering from high inflation, living standards were falling and were set to fall by a record amount. It's one of the reasons why we have the industrial unrest we have at the moment. Um, and that seems to have been the thing that also, again, occasioned a marked shift in public opinion. And I think the problem that those on the Brexit side of the argument have is you know, there are arguments about to what extent Brexit is or is not de contributing to the United Kingdom's uh, difficulties, and it certainly isn't the only cause. We're all of us suffering from the Russian invasion okay. of Ukraine and the fallout from COVID. But that basically it's very difficult to persuade public that the Brexit is delivering economically at a time when the economy is doing so badly. And certainly what is clear is that compared with 12 months ago, amongst those who voted leave in 2016, there has been a marked uh, increase in the perception that Britain's, the Brexit has been bad for the economy and that people who've come to that view, around a third of them at least, have changed their minds. Professor John Curtis from Today with Philip Outer Hayes. And in the morning, Lorraine Barry of the Ringsend and Irish Town Community Centre was talking about the big launch day of the Dementia Cafe. Ryan, we've been looking forward to this for a long time and we wanted to bring it in as a good news story um, this year. Yeah. So yeah, we have the launch of our Dementia Cafe in Tranquility Garden. Congratulations. Tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, well, I, I suppose, like, we're very proud of our gardens, right? Um, over the years, we've won awards. Um, we've had allotments there, and they were really um, very important for us during COVID. Um, we've um, launched phase one of it, which was the sensory uh, part of it, in 2021 um, during Social Inclusion Week, uh, where children planted some of the sensory plants and were encouraged to write positive messages about social inclusion. Um, so we've obviously many children with special needs attending our activities and services. So I suppose like one of the gaps we did see, and this is something very close to, to my heart, is um, 
you know, a, a facility for people and their families that are living with dementia. So um, in our recent refurbishment, we um, built a, a cafe and it's all got the white, uh, black and white photographs in the back of it and um, of Rings End and that area. And it's dedicated to the older people in the community. So we do have like our bingo and movie club and afternoon tea dances and all the rest. But we wanted to kind of address the, the you know, the stigma around um, dementia. And um, I, I actually know what that's like because my own mother in her latter years had dementia and how important it is to access information and support. Yeah. So that's what our aim is, Ryan, is to, yes. to work with the um, the Alzheimer's uh, Society and, and develop that. You know, our, our guest yesterday, Niall O'Loughlin, was put, talking about his mother, who also had dementia, and, and just uh, what it does to, to to somebody, to their personality and to, and to their mind. How How is your mother through it all? Well, she was, and she passed now um, uh, um, yes, yeah. a number of years ago, but it was at um, at that time. Uh, you're, you're right, it's kind of heartbreaking when you actually see the person that you love so much, um, you know, disorientated and all of that. And we were just like headless chickens going around trying to figure out what this was all about and had to kind of learn. Um, so we've done that. And I mean, the one thing was, and we were very lucky we were able to do it, she wanted to stay at home and there was enough of us to mind her. And she got her wish. And that was um, really through learning all about uh, dementia and you know as I say it's just really people being able to access and talk about it and take the stigma away from it you know Yeah you feel less alone, meet like-minded souls going through something pretty similar and bringing a smile to to faces over the most simple and uh, great uh, uh, modern peace pipe of them all which is a, a pot of tea. Yeah absolutely and as I say, the collaboration that's come together with this has been just amazing. I mean, it's the, the whole garden end of it has mm. been developed by our staff, volunteers, dementia, tidy towns, local businesses. Three lads that came together, local lads, uh, pullovers they're called, and they came together with their own issues through COVID and came to us and said, what can we do to help? So they're actually doing the music in the lead into the play, which is all the old songs, funny and old songs, all of that, which is absolutely lovely. Sounds wonderful. That's Lorraine Barry from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.